Well, good morning. That was so bad. That was, that was like, good morning. See, the people in Quakertown, they, they respond right away. I just let you know, okay? Just want you to know that. <laughs> so if you're new here to Calvary Church, you may not have met me before or not have seen me. Uh, I am named Carlos, and I'm the campus pastor of our Quakertown campus. Calvary Church is uh, a church with two sites. It's one church, two locations. And so we have our Souderton campus, and then we have our Quakertown campus. And it's good to see all of you here in Souderton. Uh, it's been a little bit of time, but I'm glad to see all of you. And in Quakertown, I miss all of you guys. Um, I just want you to know that. And Jeff is there with you. We figured that Jeff, he had a similar haircut to mine, and so uh, you guys would feel comfortable. But if he's giving you any hard times, just let me know, and I won't do anything about it. But just let me know anyway. But I'll see you guys next week. Well, we're nearing the end of a series that we're calling CWJS, Continuing What Jesus Started. And here's what we're doing in this series. What we're doing is we're taking a look at a book called 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy is a letter written by Paul to a man named Timothy. And Paul had a mentor relationship uh, with Timothy. He, he was a father figure to him. And Paul writes this letter in prison as he's nearing the end of his life. And as he's nearing the end of his life, he thinks of Timothy, and he writes this letter, and he's, he's passing on this final bit of wisdom to him. He's passing on this, this last bit of information to this person that he has invested so much in. But he's not just passing on information. He's not just passing on wisdom. What he's doing is passing the baton. And this baton is something that has been passed on from one person to the other since Jesus. And it continues to be passed on today. The baton is a mission. And it is this mission that we are to continue. And so we're nearing the end of the letter. We're nearing the final leg of this letter. And we're going into chapter 4, which is the last chapter of 2 Timothy. And we're going to continue for the next couple of weeks. But in this last chapter, Timothy gives, uh, Paul gives Timothy a command, a charge. And we're going to take a look at that today. And so if you have a Bible, you can look to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there are different ways you can follow along. You can look at the verses up on the screen up here. Uh, you can go to your phone or your tablet and go to the Bible app or the Bible Gateway app. Both are great apps for reading the Bible. Or if you are in Souderton, you can reach into the seat rack in front of you and take a Bible there. We also have Bibles in Quakertown. They're on a cart right before you come into the room. And if you didn't get one, raise your hand and someone will bring it to you. But whether you're in Souderton or Quakertown, here's the deal. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home. It's our gift to you. It's free. We believe that reading the Bible has the potential to impact your life, and so we want everyone to have a Bible. And if you don't have one, we want you to keep that one, or you can go to the Info Hub and ask them for that. And if you've never read a Bible and you don't know how to do that, give us a call. We'd be more than happy to help you with that. But take that Bible home and read it. So we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 
They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. So there's a ton in those verses. In fact, there's a ton just in verses 1 and 2. But in order to kind of fully understand those verses, in order to fully understand what Paul was writing, in order to understand the, the words that he put on paper, we need to kind of camp out at verse 1. And the reason we need to pause at verse 1 for a little bit is this. In verse 1, we get a taste of the tone of this command. We get a taste of the tone of what Paul is about to say. You see, in verse 1, Paul makes it clear that he is not the one who is giving this command. In fact, he resets and points to Jesus as the authority. Let's take a look at verse 1 again. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. The authority is Jesus. The tone of this command, the tone of the introduction to this command, is different from other commands that Timothy receives from Paul. Paul is this father figure, this mentor to Timothy, and he gives him different commands in different letters and different, at different points in his life. And he, and he tells him stuff about how to do ministry, how to be a pastor. He tells him about even stuff about his own physical health. He tells Timothy, hey, mix a little bit of wine in with water. Drink that so that your stomach isn't so upset. He gives him all of these things. But the uniqueness of this command is the tone ahead of it. Paul is saying, pay attention, Timothy. This is not just fatherly advice. This is not just the advice of a mentor. This is non-negotiable. This is something that you have to do. This isn't up for debate. This is the tone that Paul creates when he puts that introduction into it. Last week, Charles talked about engaging Scripture, and what he said was that the author establishes the authority. The author always has the authority. And what he was talking about was that if the Bible is God's word, if it is God-breathed, if this is the very words of God, we would be foolish to not listen to it. We would be foolish not to do what it says because the author has authority. And what we've done in this series is we've taken a look at the pictures and metaphors and images that Paul wrote and, and sent to Timothy, and we found that there was a pattern that we've we discovered there was a pattern of action. There was a progression of action that we learned about. And Charles said it this way. Authority leads to regimen, which leads to result. Authority leads to regimen, which leads to result. There's always an authority. And that authority creates the playbook. And when you follow the playbook, you get the results of the one who's in authority. And what we've said in this series is this, we want us, we want you, we want me, we want Charles, we want all of us to realize this, far too often we play according to the rules of our own playbook, and we need to put that playbook down and stop being the one in authority and pick up the playbook of Jesus and live according to his authority. This is the tone that Paul establishes in verse 1. Paul resets and focuses on the authority of Jesus. And as he does that, he sets into motion this progression of action that we just described. Having established a tone of the authority of Jesus, he shifts to verse 2, where he looks at the regimen, and he gives instruction on how to follow that regimen. 
In fact, he gives layers of instruction. He gives layers of instruction for this regimen, and it starts with this. It starts with preach the word. Preach the word. My oldest daughter, Autumn, uh, every time I'm about to preach at Calvary, the week leading up to it, she usually comes up to me and she says the same thing. She says, Dad, what are you going to preach on? And so she did that this week, and she came up to me and said, Dad, what are you going to preach on? And so I looked at her and I said, I'm going to preach on preaching. She goes, really? Okay. She's like, that doesn't seem like it fits into this series. I'm like, no, it actually does. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Go read it. She goes, oh, preach on preaching. That sounds boring. I'm like, what? She goes, I mean, that just doesn't sound that interesting. And my ears perk up because usually when she starts to talk to me, I'm like, I have a sermon illustration that I'm going to get from this. And so I take out my phone and I get ready to take notes. And I'm like, really? She goes, Dad, we all know about preaching. Do tell. (laughs) And so I wrote down what she said because I wanted to make sure I quoted her right. And she didn't realize. She thought I must have been texting or something. But I was actually typing out everything she was saying. And so this is what she said to me. We all know how to preach, Dad. It starts with outlines. First, you need to scout the text. Then you psychoanalyze it. (laughs) I still don't know what she meant by that. Then you have to check it with other texts so it can sermonate. I'm pretty sure she made up that word. I don't know what she meant by it, but I think it's a pretty cool word because I think it's kind of when a sermon marinates or something. So it needs to sermonate. It's wonderful. I love that word. And then she says, then there's a few books that maybe you get help with. Okay, before you think I'm just making fun of her or just trying to get a laugh, the reason that I'm telling this story is because how she ended it. She says the word sermonate, and I found that cute and funny and and she says, psychoanalyze. And I was like, you have no clue what that word means. But, but then she ended it. She gave me this whole speech, and this is what she said at the end. But the preaching always ends with what does this say about Jesus? But the preaching always ends with what does this say about Jesus? And that's when she made her dad proud. Because she got it. She got it. The regimen always has to point to the authority. Preach the word always has to point to the authority. It always has to point to Jesus. She got it right. Now, leading up to that, she made up some words, and she actually got it wrong. She was not correct. And it wasn't that she was correct because she made up these words or or that she didn't understand what some of the words were. That's not why she was incorrect. She was incorrect because she made the same mistake that you and I often make. When it comes to preaching for Autumn, she detailed a list of actions and tasks that were to take place in order to do what I'm doing in front of you today. And if we simply look at preaching, if we simply look at preach the word in that light, if we simply look at it as someone standing in front of a group of people and talking then we're going to miss some of the fullness 
of what Paul is telling Timothy. I looked up the translation of the word preach that Paul uses in this letter. And here's what that word means. The word preach means to be a herald. Proclaim. To be a herald. Proclaim. Paul is telling Timothy, proclaim the word and be a herald of the word. Paul is telling Timothy to proclaim the word and be a herald of the word. Why is that important? Because this command is not just about something you are to do. This command is about something you are to be. It's not just about something you are to do, some words to say. It's about something that you are to be. Well, what are we supposed to be? What's a herald? It's not like I go around and, and someone was walking past me and I was like, there goes a herald. What's a herald? We don't even use that. We, we sing, hark the herald angels, and none of us even know what that word means. So I looked it up. I looked it up on merriamwebster.com. And... Uh, there were three definitions there that struck me. Because as I read over the definition of herald, I realized what Paul was trying to say. Merriam-Webster.com defines herald as this. An officer with the status of ambassador, acting as official messenger between leaders, especially in war. An official crier or messenger one who actively promotes or advocates. You see, if we're living under the authority of Jesus, if we're living under the authority of Jesus, then we get a regimen. We get a set of instructions. And that regimen is the regimen of an official messenger. That regimen is the regimen of an ambassador for Jesus. It is the regiment of someone who is to proclaim the word, who is to proclaim the truth of the gospel, who is to advocate for the gospel. That is the charge that Paul is giving to Timothy. That is what he's asking him to be. That's what it means to preach the word. And so Paul gives him this, this charge, and then he tells him how he's to do it. He uses three words. He uses the words correct, rebuke, and encourage. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. When you preach the word, you need to correct, rebuke, and encourage. And you need to live in the tension of those three. And here's what I mean by that. Correct. When Paul uses the word correct, he's not talking about behavior. He's talking about doctrine. And so what Paul is saying is when you engage with culture, when you are to preach the word, you engage with culture in an intellectual way. You need to stay true to the scripture and stay true to the gospel. You need to engage in an intellectual way. When he says rebuke, Paul is saying that we need to engage culture in a moral way. We need to point to the way that Jesus' kingdom is meant to be. We engage culture in a moral way. And then when we use the word encourage and we apply that to preach the word, we find out this. We are to engage culture in an emotional way. And so we see others the way that Jesus sees them. And we try to get them to see 
that same thing, that look of love that Jesus gives to them. When we correct, we engage in an intellectual way. When we rebuke, we engage in a moral way. When we encourage, we engage in an emotional way. And we are to live in that tension of all three. You have to do all three or else you are not accomplishing the fullness of preach the word. Because here's the truth. Here's what we usually do. We gravitate to one, maybe two, but we never usually gravitate to all three. Sometimes we're like, let's engage in an intellectual way. Let's make sure that we know the scripture, make sure we know what it says, and make sure that we say it accurately. And that's what we will do. But we never encourage. Or sometimes we're like, you know what? We need to encourage and, and engage in an emotional way. And we need to make sure that people understand the love of Jesus and, this, and that grace was extended because of this love. And we need them to see themselves as Jesus sees them. But we never rebuke. Or, or, or sometimes we rebuke or, or whatever it is. We kind of go to one end or the other end and that's where we kind of camp out and that's where we stay. But you can't do that. You have to live in the tension. You have to live in that tension of correcting, rebuking, and encouraging. You have to do all three. You know why you have to do all three? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus engaged his culture in an intellectual way. Jesus engaged his culture in a moral way. Jesus engaged his culture in an emotional way. He corrected, he rebuked, and he encouraged. That's what Jesus did. A few months ago, if you were here, you would have been in the middle of a series that we were doing called This is the Life. And when we were in the middle of that series, what we did is we took a look at the life of Jesus. We took a look at the Gospels, and we said, this is the life of Jesus. And as we looked at the life of Jesus said, this is the life of Jesus, we said, this is the life that we are to live as well. And we used a phrase in there. We used a phrase both, word, both in word and in deed. Both in word and in deed. And what we said is, this is the life of Jesus. This is what he did, both in word and in deed. And we were to follow that example and live out this life, both in word and in deed, reflecting the image of Jesus. And so what does it mean to be a herald? What does it mean to preach the word? Being a herald is simply continuing what Jesus started in both word and in deed. And so Paul gives us some instructions on the attitude we are to have, the attitudes we are to have as a herald. And he says two things. He says, be prepared and be patient. In fact, he says, be prepared in season and out of season. And when I read that, I was really excited because I didn't realize I had an off season. I didn't realize there was an off season for preachers and pastors. I was like, this is great. When does it start? That's not what he means. When Paul says, be prepared in season and out of season, what he's saying is, be prepared always. Be prepared always. Not just on a Sunday when you're in church. Not just when you're volunteering in Kid Fest and you're talking to some kids during devotional time. Not just in the proper setting of preaching the word. Be prepared always. In your school. Be prepared at home. Be prepared in your neighborhood, at your job, in the grocery store, at the toll booth. Be prepared always. 
But the second command, the second attitude we are to have is this. Be patient. Be patient. Here's why that's important. If you are a herald, the object of your mission revolves around the heart of a person. So you are to be patient and to love. Be prepared and be patient. So we got the tone in verse 1, the tone of this command, and we, when we got the tone, we realized that the authority must center on Jesus. And then we moved forward and we got the instruction, we got the actual command in verse 2. And we learned of the instruction for the regimen under the authority of Jesus. But there's still one left, right? It's authority, regimen, result. So what about the result? If verse 1 is authority and verse 2 is regimen, then what about result? Well, in verse 3, it starts with a very powerful word. The word is for. F-O-R. For. You see, verse 1 was the tone, provided the authority of Jesus. Verse 2 was instruction, provided the regimen of Jesus. Verse 3 begins and goes through the rest of verse 5 and provides the motive behind this command. And in that motive, we learn of the result. You see, in that motive, we realize why this is important to Paul. In that motive, we learn what will happen when this command is followed through. And the way that it happens, the way that Paul shares this is that he provides a motive reflecting on what will happen if the command is not followed. He provides a motive reflective of when people are under their own authority, not the authority of Jesus. And the result of that is this. We get a polluted gospel. We get a distorted gospel. We get a gospel that is shaped by man instead of man being shaped by the gospel. Instead of being transformed by the gospel, we transform the gospel to suit our needs. That's what happens when we live under our own authority. A shift takes place and the gospel gets polluted. It gets distorted. And this is the motive behind what Paul is saying. He said there's an urgency here. There's a serious nature here. If you don't follow it, this is what will happen. And Paul does this throughout the letter. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 2 of 2 Timothy... Paul says a similar theme in chapter 2. He says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. This has been the theme verse of our whole series. And Paul is urging Timothy to be diligent, to pass the baton on, to entrust others with the truth of preaching the word, with the true truth. Why? Why is it so important? Because the truth of the gospel needs to stay in focus. And in order for the truth of the gospel to stay in focus, Jesus needs to be at the remainder, remain at the center of that focus. And if Jesus is the center of that focus and we are under the authority of Jesus, then the result will be what Jesus desires. But when it shifts and that gospel gets distorted and polluted, the result is not what Jesus desired. The gospel because something, becomes something that we create. 
But what about the result if we follow the command? What about the result if we actually do what this command says? What will happen? What will happen if we are heralds of the good news? Well, I guess in order to understand the good news, we need to understand the bad news first. You see, here's the bad news. You, myself, all of us, every person throughout humankind, from the beginning of time, has rejected God, has rebelled against God, has said that I will live under my own authority, not yours. And when that happens, there is one punishment. There is a result of that. That punishment is an unimaginable time of being separated eternally from God. And there is only one price that can be paid to satisfy that judgment so that we do not have to go through that. There is only one thing that can be paid. And the problem is, here's the bad news, we can't pay it. There's nothing we can do. We cannot go to church enough. We cannot do enough good things. We cannot say enough uh, memorize scripture. There's nothing we can do to get on our own efforts to pay the price. That's the bad news. But the good news, the news that we are to preach, the news that we are to be heralds of, is more powerful than the bad news. What will happen? What would happen if we were heralds of the good news. What would happen if we were heralds of the good news that Jesus was born and was fully man and fully God and lived a perfect life? And because he lived a perfect life, he could pay the price that we could not pay. What would happen if we were heralds of the good news and we said that because Jesus could pay that, he was able to offer his own life as a sacrifice, as an act of love? What would happen if as heralds of the good news we proclaimed that because of that, his body was broken and was beaten and he was nailed to a cross, paying the cost that we were supposed to pay? What would happen if when we said that and we were heralds of the news and we proclaimed the news of the gospel, if we brought the truth of the fact that Jesus was taken off of that cross and he was put into a tomb? What would happen if we were heralds of the good news that Jesus walked out of that tomb three days later alive and eternally victorious? What would happen if we were heralds of the good news that because of that, Jesus now offers us the ability to choose to follow him, to let go of being the authority of our own life, to choose him as authority, and to be called children of God. What would happen if we were heralds of the good news that Jesus is one day coming back and making all things perfect? You see, that is the word that we are to preach. And when we preach that word, lives change. In a moment, in a moment, I'm going to pray. And both in Souderton and in Quakertown, we are going to have communion. And you see, when we have communion, here's what happens. We remember as a group, we remember as a family, what I just described. You see, if you are under the authority of Jesus, if you live your life under the authority of Jesus, when we have communion, you celebrate Jesus. But if you've walked into this room and you are living under your own authority, if you've walked into this room and you are not living under the authority of Jesus, here is the really good news. You are the object 
of the mission of Jesus. Everything that I just described is for you. And he loves you more than you can ever, ever imagine. And he wants you to stop living a life according to your own authority. And he wants you to stop trying to hold up your life according to your own authority and to put everything down and finally raise your hands and say, okay, I'm surrendering. I'm going to live under the authority of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus loves you more than you can imagine and that he died for you so that you could be with him forever. If you are not living under the authority of Jesus, the greatest news you've ever heard today is this. The gospel is for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for your love, for your grace. We thank you that you paid a price that we could never pay. Lord, we ask you that you will help us to preach the word, both in word and in deed. That we will speak when we need to speak, that we will do when we need to do. That we will be the image of Jesus to everyone we come in contact with. Lord, forgive me for the times that I have not done that. Lord, we thank you for your love. Be with us today. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.